Today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. The Netflix podcast is a proud member of the Electric Streams podcast network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Hello everyone and welcome to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host Dylan Clark Moore and today we're going to be talking about The Crucible, which is currently available on Netflix in Canada and the US. Before we get into it, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. First, that the conversation will contain spoilers for The Crucible and the Salem Witch Trials, I guess? As well, some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. I'm here today with your favorite co-host. Welcome once again to Caroline Deason. Thanks, Dylan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We've been sitting here chatting for a very long time before we started recording. So We've already had our own podcast. Yes. Uh, Caroline, same question as always. Is there anything cool you've been watching on Netflix? Well, I watched season three of Netflix original series. uh, Actually, the final season of Netflix original series Bloodline. So what did you think? I know you've been looking forward to it. I liked it. So okay, season one of Bloodline I watched like 50 times. So many times because it was layered and every time I rewatched it I felt like I found another piece of the puzzle. Um, Season two I watched once and was like okay, you know the plot has advanced and it's left me on a cliffhanger so I want to know what happens but I didn't watch it again. Season three went back to a lot of the nice things about season one, where it was stranger and had a little bit more of the supernatural elements that I really liked about season one that they pretty much discarded in season two. But that said, you know, it's been a month or so since I watched season three and I haven't felt a hankering to rewatch it. So I don't know what you want to take away from that, but, you know, not as compelling as season one was maybe, but it it was the final season, so everything was wrapped up as neatly as it possibly could be. Sure. Um, yeah, so maybe there just isn't a reason to rewatch it. Yeah. I still do recommend Bloodline, though. I think it's... Uh, Would you say it's satisfying? Yeah, yeah, it is satisfying. It ends in a way that could definitely lead to another s- series, even though they knew, or sorry, another season, even though they knew that that was going to be the final season. And I think that's intentional to just... You kind of do that in uh, quasi-mystery. You know, you can't have everything to neatly wrapped up sure but yeah no i would say it's satisfying everybody got what they deserved i think Mm -hmm. so would you recommend that people watch the whole thing or just watch the first season and then you've kind of gotten what you need from it Mm, that's a good question that's what i'm here for asking the tough questions so at the end of season one and this is the for the post i wrote for our website um for our blog i i said that i'm looking forward to season two because i want to see if the people who have done wrong get what they deserve 
So you could just watch season one if you're happy with never knowing if the comeuppance is ever served, because I do think that that's the best season. But let's just say that, yes, the finale is satisfying in that a lot of people get what they deserve. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for myself, I talked last time about watching the stand-ups. That's the, the Netflix original series of comedy specials where they give a half hour time slot to six different comics that in my case I hadn't heard of most of them um, so I watched the first three last time and then this time I watched the last three which unfortunately were two of the three were among the weakest in mm. the in the whole thing um, Nikki Glazer's half hour didn't really do anything for me at all and then Dan Soder is the finale episode which is kind of disappointing because uh, his his wasn't great either, but then Beth Stelling is the second, or I guess the fifth, yeah, the fifth episode, and she was, if not the best, then at least one of the best. So there is this, there is kind of a adding it all up. I would say half of them are really solid, and then half of them kind of miss the miss the point. Which I guess if you're gonna if you're gonna put out six episodes, like that's not a bad ratio when it comes to stand up, because not not every joke is gonna land with every person every time, and I think right. it's a pretty hard medium to qualify in terms of do you think it's like a question of taste too or like are there some people who would really love the ones that you didn't dig so much or was it just performance was not great um i don't know i think if it is that then i think that the people who like the bad ones are dicks (laughs) i see say no more like the the dan soder stuff is very like bro heavy and he talks about you know Gross. being a, a stoned 33 year old all the time and why <laughs> isn't that like oh i'm so embarrassed about it Ew. like that that sort of thing yeah um and so i checked out the imdb ratings for each of them and i felt like at least there's a consensus of taste <laughs> between what the general imdb community felt and right. what i felt about it that um uh, that three of them were were pretty great and then three of them were were more lacking and uh so I think it's a bit of both that, I mean, people like shit movies, right? I yeah. Mean, there's a reason Adam Sandler has a career. <laughs> Come at me, I guess, Adam Sandler. <laughs> do you like early Adam Sandler? Like, do you um, like, like, The Wedding Singer? I rewatched Billy Happy Gilmore recently. Yeah. What do you and think? was kind of like, okay, yeah, I can see why this stands the test of time. But, I mean, it's not. Yeah. I mean, Ridiculous Six is still one of the, the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I watched was the most recent season of Archer, which mm. I have a weird relationship with, um, because every time it shows up on Netflix, they're like, "We've got the new season." I'm like, "Yeah, we do." And then I start watching it. And I'm like, oh, "Okay, like when are we when are we wrapping this up?" Right. And I feel the same way. I haven't been too sure on whether I just watch it out of habit because I was so enamored with the first few seasons, or if it's actually good, but it's not quite as novel as it used to be. I'm not sure where that is, but the fact that I'm even asking that question tells me that maybe I don't enjoy the show in the same way that I used to. I'm not a huge fan of this kind of like season per season throwaway gimmick that they're doing now. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of lost a lot of its charm for me as a result. But uh, yeah, that's what I've been watching. But the movie that we're actually here to talk about this episode is from the year 1996 from director Nicholas Hinter, based on the 1953 play by Arthur Miller. We're going to be talking about The Crucible. Uh, Crucible? Yes. El Crucible. (laughs) So let's look at, let's introduce the movie the same way that Netflix does. When you look at the description on Netflix as you hover over the title, 
It says, playwright Arthur Miller's parable of the 1950s anti-communist crusade receives lush treatment in this Oscar-nominated film adaptation. Which, in terms of a plot summary, tells you less than dick all about (laughs) what you're about to watch. Yeah, true. I guess they just assume that literally everybody on the planet is American and has read The Crucible in high school. I guess so, but like I wouldn't have been able to tell you what the crucible was yeah. before you talked about but doing this. Most Americans, yeah, would have read like the crucible part in high of the school. Curriculum oh yeah, and... for sure. Okay, yeah. Um, and then this is two week or two episodes in a row that this has happened. That the the click description is the same. So oh weird. I don't know if Netflix's Someone's... caption writers are just taking a break. Or, yeah, or if this is just a weird coincidence or what. Someone's slacking. But the genres this belongs to, according to Netflix, are. Do you want to take any guesses? Drama. Yep, dramas. Then courtroom drama. Okay. Dramas based on books. Okay. And dramas based on classic literature. Well, we are really splitting some hairs here. <laughs> I love the really, the really refined categories. They make me smile. <laughs> um, and then the. Dis- but like, do you really need dramas based on classic lit? Okay, if you have dramas based on classic literature, that is the umbrella for dramas based on books and drama. Sure, but dramas based on books could also be like... Yeah, drama based on books is fine, but if you have classic literature, you don't need books and drama. If you have that one category, you don't need those other two. Fair enough. In this description, I mean. Um, Netflix. As for the uh, the adjectives that it's described as... Dark? Uh, this one has none. What? It okay, someone is slacking all. over at Netflix. <laughs> Except this has been on Netflix for ages. Has it? Well, I mean, since at least the first time that we talked about doing it. Oh, damn. I thought it was one of the new additions. Never nope. mind. Oh, um, well, I'm so glad we got to you, Crucible. <laughs> <laughs> so, Caroline, why the Crucible? Because you, you picked this one. And yes. And I'm sure there are a bunch of reasons why. So feed um, them to me. So I'd never seen this movie, but I'm a big fan of the Arthur Miller play. And my research as a PhD student um, centers a lot on basically from I, I'm looking at the witch in American literature from the time of the Puritans, which so the time when this took place, up through and including 1953 when The Crucible was released as a play. And now that I've seen the movie, I guess I can involve the movie as well too. Um, so, in terms of how that ties into your research and whatnot, how well does this coincide with that? Like, do you consider this to be because we did Practical Magic before, which mm-hmm. is a movie about witches. Mm-hmm. Do you consider this to be a movie about witches, or is it more about a movie, or is it more of a movie about Americans' relationship with witchcraft? Yes, that's an excellent question, and that's actually what my dissertation is about. It's about the witch as a historical dissertation figure. Spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a, nobody fucking take my idea and publish it before I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about the the archetype of the witch being used in American literary culture as a scapegoat since the Salem witch trials. So I'm interested in ways that we reinvent the witch and use this, specifically Salem, as a a metaphor for new so-called witch hunts. And this is especially salient right now, given that the term witch hunt has become a catchphrase for the president of the united states and his ilk um, right i mean specifically there was the a recent 
tweet where he described the the Russian collusion investigation as the biggest witch hunt in American history. Right. Was that what he said? Yeah, forgetting the whole, you know, history of that term comes from Salem. Sure. Yes, he's an idiot. But anyway, there's actually there was a, a, a an article in um, New York Magazine recently about how witch hunt until Donald Trump had always been used to describe when a more powerful person is seemingly using their power to wrongly accuse and chase after weaker people. And now it's like people in power are pretending that they are the ones being persecuted by weaker people. Right. And so this has never happened before in the kind of history of the colloquial term witch hunt, which um, actually was around before McCarthyism, around before the 1940s and 50s. Um, it was around in the 19th century, but, you know, definitely came to signify specifically the Salem witch trials with Arthur Miller's The Crucible. So to answer your question, this is a parable, as Netflix says, but... It's an interesting thing to talk about Salem in this light as being something that is at once a metaphor for something that happened 400 years later, but then also 300 years later, I guess, less than 250 years later. I'm not a mathematician. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, so a metaphor for something that happened a couple of centuries later, but also something that America cannot shake something that has formed America. So kind of the thesis of my dissertation is that we can't talk about anything that's going on in the United States today without acknowledging the Salem witch trials. And that's like slightly different from other things that have happened in American history. You know, you would say the same thing about the Civil War, but you ne wouldn't necessarily say that about the Louisiana Purchase type of thing. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And I think that that's at once a historical fact, and it's also... A cultural fact and the cultural weave between sorry I guess like the artistic weave between culture and history in my opinion is never more pronounced in American culture and liter literature than with the metaphor of Salem I'm, I'm not so worried about it like portraying witches or not I'm worried or I'm concerned with it portraying the archetype of the witch that is distinctly American um, so very different in terms of comparing it to practical magic yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i have a question for you dylan about the crucible because you have not read the play right correct and like just generally you just wanted to call that out how poorly read <laughs> no that's not true at all because no. like i said like this is something that is in american high school curriculums definitely uh not at all in canadian high school curriculums this is not something that canadians read and that is a shame because I'm sure that one of the reasons that it's not in Canadian high school curriculums is that it's American, but like To Kill a Mockingbird is on there. And anyway, I think uh, The Crucible can give To Kill a Mockingbird a run for its money. Yeah, so. I mean, just to give some context to my ignorance, I actually had no idea what it was oh, until you asked to talk about it. Oh, cool. Okay. Wow. Um, so did you know it was about Salem? No, not at all. So I, I think I knew that it was a communist parable before even right. knew what setting it was in the first place and so like what would you how would you rate your kind of like knowledge about the salem witch trials i i would say that there's a curiosity there i've actually been to salem oh nice and been to a Me couple too. of uh wax did you, museums did you go to the witch, the witch museum yeah but i was pretty young so i don't right. i don't know how much of it stuck i remember 
being inside of a museum, but I don't really remember too much of it. Right. The Salem Witch Museum is such, is so hokey and so adorable. Like it's, <laughs> it is, it's like wax figures that are all set up in dioramas and you yes. like walk around and watch the dioramas. Yeah. Do they, they move, right? I feel like I remember seeing somebody like pressed to death or something. Yeah. You yeah. saw Giles Corey and he said more weight when... Yes. Yeah. I guess so. That's a memorable thing. I've been there twice in, okay. in like recent years, so I do remember that a little more. Yeah. That's my most memorable diorama of all of them. Anyway, okay. So coming at it from a position that is very different from me, where I knew about Salem and I knew about the Crucible because I've studied both, um, but had not seen the movie. Who in your... Because there, there are quite a few differences between the, the film version and the play version. And there are quite a few differences between the play version and the real life version. So. Right. Because this is more based on actual events and people than I real I, than I realized in watching it. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Um, Sorry, just to. Cause yeah, I, that's fine. I mean. This is, this is the conversation I want to have is like. Yeah, I suppose I, I watched it and I mean, I'm aware of the fact that there were the Salem witch trials and that there's generally the understanding that it's. I mean, my takeaway from it was that torture is largely dumb because people confess to things that they didn't do right. to stop you from torturing them. Yes. Um, and that was always my takeaway from it. So then watching the movie, I was like, yep, yeah, that confirms a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but then the more I was reading about it, I was like, oh, that's an actual person and that's an actual person. And, and right. I didn't realize how I realized there's a lot of artistic license that's taken with it. Um, but I didn't realize how grounded in reality it is. Right. And And so is that are you kind of surprised at how many records exist from that time period that give us this insight onto these characters the fact that we even know that these char- that these people existed is does that surprise you i mean it doesn't surprise me when i think about it i mean it, these seem like pretty mundane people to mm. for there to be such a such a strong record of but i also realized that this was all done through a court system so it right. would be well documented which is part of that's where a lot of the horror of this movie comes for me is because of how institutionally supported yeah. all of this stuff was. Because this wasn't just like a few people getting some crazy ideas in their head and then acting out in this malicious sort of way. This was like an institutional, yeah, this institutionally accepted fact that, well, we know that witches are real and we know that this is the best way that we found to find them. So here's just what we do. And then in retrospect, we look at that and we're, we're horrified that any of this ever happened but you know this came with the authority of the highest courts possible right yep i mean specifically where that really drove home was when hale is trying to explain that like okay no we li- we need to be listening to john proctor because hale like everybody else recognizes that like john proctor's just like a good dude trying his best here and then danforth replies with this very like cold meticulous explanation of why well, since witchcraft is an invisible crime, the only people who are subject to it are the person doing it and the victim. And we're not about to trust the judgment of, or we're not going to trust the testimony of the person who's performing witchcraft. So therefore, by deduction, all we have to go by is the testimony of the victim. And so it just, somebody in my position watching this, you're just like, yeah, but do you not see why this is insane? Yeah. But it has this this authority and this, this rationalization that's been that's permeated through the whole institution that's making all of this happen yeah and everybody's powerless against it i just wanted to point out so i reread the play today 
just kind of in preparation of coming to record the podcast and um one of the things that really struck me the difference between the play and the movie and this is just by virtue of it being a movie is that arthur miller is really liberal with his stage directions he does not leave a lot to the actor interpretation or the director interpretation as a playwright he is like he gives a lot of um direction to the actor in his lines so when proctor says that he wants to live and that he'll confess and danforth comes in and says oh praise the lord you know like here here we are uh and everybody comes in to you know open this box and get this information out so that he can sign it and whatever and make the confession um the stage direction is proctor with a cold cold horror at their efficiency why must it be written so like the line is why must it be written and that's what we saw daniel day lewis say but the fact that arthur miller goes to the extent of putting cold comma cold horror at the at the efficiency this play is a play that is meant to be read not just watched sure do you know what i mean yeah and another interesting thing about it is that there are huge big you know sometimes it goes on for pages and pages where he just gives background information about the characters that you will never understand unless you read this these parts for instance when giles Corey is talking about how his wife sits up reading sometimes and he you know says i was having trouble reciting my prayers and then she she closed the book and left and then suddenly my prayers came to me and that's when hale is like oh that is a problem you know like we need to talk about this um in the in the actual text of the play arthur miller describes giles Corey's character and says it's not un usual that he forgot his prayers first of all he's an idiot and he's drunk and really old and he only really started going to church a couple years ago so he forgets his prayers all the time but Hale doesn't know that right and the you don't know that as a viewer so you're kind of taking Giles Corey's uh testimony or whatever like not a, not a legit testimony but his claim at the same level of trustworthiness that Hale is when if you had read the play you would have understood that He's just an idiot. Well, I think to the credit of the performance in this movie, when Giles Corey, I forget the actor's name, but when he's doing it, you do get the impression that it's just, he's this guy who's impressed that there's this big city reverend come to town. He's just like, I'm just going to spout off whatever I can think of that might grab your attention, not realizing that he's possibly throwing his own wife into the crosshairs and doing so. Right. But did you like, did you believe that he couldn't remember his prayers and that that was weird for him because like it's not weird for him is the point like like arthur miller goes to the goes to the you know lengths of actually describing like this is not strange for him yeah there's no reason to do that if there's no like there's no narrator on stage saying this stuff when the play is being mounted for an audience and there's definitely no narrator saying it in this movie version so it's just an amazing like this this was written with such purpose as to be something that you study in high school and not yeah. just something that you, you know, you watch on, on the stage or on the yeah. screen. Yeah, anyway, it sounds like a different text. Yeah, it does exactly, and so that's why this is what my my question was going to be: Who is the bad guy in the Crucible? In the movie? Yes. Uh, it's Abby. Abby Williams is the the bad guy for sure. Okay. I think that the movie does a pretty demonizing job of. Okay. <laughs> the, yeah. What do you think about that? There's no wrong answer. Well, no, I think that, I mean, Abby is the instigator of everything, but I also think that 
there is a very scary and this is where i brought up like the institutions right there's this very scary institutional force that allows somebody like abby to wield so much power so i mean because it's tough to put a finger on. i mean like judge danforth seems like the bad guy but he's also he seems to be acting genuinely and not in in not even necessarily in a he's a, a villain who has a purpose kind of way in a he genuinely thinks that he's ridding the world of evil and he's being fed information that's he, that is incur like it's it's bringing his worst fears to life like he's so scared of witchcraft existing in the world and here are people telling him that like there are real witches in this town it's like oh shit like this is this is what i've been training for i mean mm-hmm. he's he's much more confident than that but i know it's it's this bigger threat than any one person yeah which i think is i mean that's the thing with the i'm even less informed about you know the the mccarthy era than i am about the salem witch trials but i mean that was the whole thing with i mean that was part of the thing too is that it wasn't just mccarthy like there was there were institutional forces that were allowing people to be identified and persecuted against because of belief a or b and being able to be called out by an anonymous or non anonymous source but being able to have people be like i don't like my neighbor so i'm going to accuse them of this thing that's hard to prove or disprove and therefore it's going to ruin their entire lives Mm -hmm. yeah and that's actually why i'm asking because i would my interpretation of mccarthyism is that actually mccarthy was a lot more influential than if we think that danforth is his kind of literary equal or literary you know version um mccarthy was actually a lot more instrumental than danforth was and so i think that mccarthy as a as a parable or as a an allegory has been split into both abigail and danforth and hawthorne and you know all the judges and paris as well like all anybody who was disturbing the peace um also just as a side note did you know that the judge named Hawthorne is actually like a direct relative of Nathaniel Hawthorne who ended up writing about Salem as well and lived oh, in Salem. Oh, I didn't realize that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Just added a W to the name a little bit later. Right on. A couple generations later. Yeah. Um, anyway, what do you think? So your, your first answer was that Abigail is the bad guy. What do you, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about the movie making you feel that Abigail is the bad guy? I'm not getting at anything. Like, I'm not trying to like, lead <laughs> no, you somewhere fine. or anything. Um, well, I think that, I mean, it, it kind of, it shifts. It starts off as being Abigail because you're like, oh, you, you're, you're ruining everything. But then, like I said, she, I mean, she gets pretty neutered by the end, right? Yeah, like, people she, are like. She goes to Hawthorne. She's like, oh, I've got a new one. It's, uh, it's Hale's wife this time. And they're like, no. That's not in the play, by the way. It's not? No. That's oh, added for the movie. That's dope. Because yeah. that, uh, that was a great moment where she's just powerless. And it shows that even, like, the institutions that have supported her at that point are just like, no. Like, we're we're done. Right. And and when she leaves the house at that, you know, after that, people are, people are not revering her like they were before. They're shunning her. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the, the feeling that you get from that whole thing is that everybody's coming down from the high of the the ecstasy and hysteria they're just kind of like oh man like what did we do last night yeah which you see literally when people are cheering for all the executions and then get progressively more and more morose yeah um so i mean she's 
it's almost like she's the one who invited the monster to their door, but there's a bigger monster that's out there. Right. So I also, I mean, I, I felt weird when towards when we were getting into, I don't know what to call it. When, uh, when John Proctor is being questioned and there was his whole thing where he was trying to come clean that he really made it about Abby and almost seemed like he was trying to absolve himself of responsibility mm-hmm. for their relationship that he was calling this a a whore's vengeance and you know she's guilty of harlotry and god forgive me i gave into it but she's the one who did this to me i felt like the characters in the movie were sometimes blaming her more than than they needed to be or at least I mean, he was i mean he's right that by by admitting that he's giving up everything right like he's he's now guilty of adultery and he will be imprisoned or charged at least for adultery and another thing that the the that reading the play really hits home that the movie kind of touches on but that if you're not paying attention if you're not looking for it you might not realize in the play everyone is obsessed with the land that they own and this is you know linked to the money that they have right like you know their social status and their money but one of the reasons that proctor is hesitant to admit that he committed adultery is because by being criminally charged he will lose the title to his land so it has very kind of little to do with his actual pride when it comes to that and more to do and that's why he talks about like how can i raise my sons you know if my name is at the door that that might have come off a little weird where he it's like dude just like it doesn't matter like you know nobody nobody cares it's not a big deal but it's actually it translates to an actual monetary value okay i think i mean i think that it plays really well in the movie that you don't get that i think i mean there are there are moments where you get that he has the respect of people because he has this land like when giles Corey is introducing him and he says oh you know you need to listen to him because he has so many acres right that's like one of the very specific hat tips to basically the whole point of the right play (laughs) but then the movie seems way more focused on just the concept of goodness and i mean as I hate any sentence that starts with as a father, but I mean, I'm looking when he's talking about like, how am I supposed to raise my kids in any kind of rightness? If, if I lied, if I lied. And if, I mean, there is, if the, the thing that is most known about me is that I confess to something that I didn't do or that I betrayed the deaths of all these other people. Like it's a real, it's much more about a moral thing and less about a, a practical thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect, perfect metaphor for McCarthyism in that way, though, right? Where like, it wasn't as if Proctor was the one who gave the names of Rebecca Nurse and um, Martha Corey, who are who are supposed to die on the same day as him, which is historically inaccurate. They all died on three separate days, like weeks and weeks apart. But so I don't. I guess what I'm getting at is that, and this is kind of speaking about specifically about the casting choices this is the first movie i've ever seen with daniel day lewis and everybody's always talking about how great he is (laughs) and i mean fine he was a very competent actor but the that scene at the end where he is freaking out about his name was not at all how i interpret the lines when i'm reading them in the play he he oversells it in a way that makes me think that he doesn't understand what he's talking about. I'm talking about the actor. You know what I mean? Like, we suddenly go from him grappling with the idea of dying 
and not being able to be alive and be with his wife and be a dad to him being like, oh, well, actually, the reason that I am fine with dying is because my name would be besmirched. He's never said anything like that the whole time. In fact, he's been the opposite of that. He's like a lowly farmer. In real life, he was a tavern owner. And like, he is not concerned at all with his status. He does not go to church because he hates the reverend so much, like the, the, the preacher so much. So he does not care what other people think of him, right? Like he is like a scruffy man's man. And then suddenly he's selling this line as if it has everything to do with how his name will be remembered and not actually how to, to do with how he will provide for his family and how that reflects poorly on him as like a spiritual person. I got the feeling pretty early on that he was very concerned about how he was perceived. And maybe this was because I, I wasn't going in with any kind of knowledge of the, the economics of things. But that was my feeling about why he didn't come forward in the first place. And maybe this is what Arthur Miller was trying to get at. Or I get, Arthur Miller wrote the screenplay for this movie as well as writing the play, correct? That's right, yeah. Um, so maybe that's what he was trying to get at, like making it more about the morality of the thing. Because I, I got the feeling that that's why he didn't want to get involved in this whole Abby Williams thing in the first place was because he was worried about his reputation and being the guy who sinned. And that was a really big moment for him to finally confess to it. Right. But what I'm saying is that the sin has less to do with the fact that he will be seen as an adulterer and more to do with the fact that he will then be charged with a crime and lose his um, like livelihood. Right. And where I'm coming from is that the movie is its own entity and that without that information. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's I think the point of it is more about okay him being a prideful man who finally confesses to this horrible thing that he did um you know. okay but now when daniel day lewis screams because it is my name and it's the only one i get mm-hmm. he does realize like that his character is going to die a witch right like his name <laughs> is still going to be right terrible much worse than you know if he had just confessed and gotten forgiven Right. Like he's been excommunicated from the church, which Mm -hmm. is his entire town, his entire country. And then he's going to be hanged for a crime, which is the worst way to die. His family is going to be destitute because of this. I I don't get it. Like, I don't I don't I don't understand why he sold that line the way that he did. Yeah. I mean, I guess I maybe I, I just bought it because of the hamminess of the performance but, but like never before in the in the play did i or in the movie did i get the sense that he was like super like john proctor's here everybody listen to john proctor i'm john proctor john proctor john proctor you know what i mean like i'm a really influential person in salem he doesn't even live in salem like he's not he, oh, i, he I got not f- care at all about salem what's going on there oh i got the feeling that he did um because charles Corey seems just like he's like a little puppy like very excited to hear what john proctor has to think uh, he gets described as being, you know, a man of influence around the town. People, aside from the, uh, who's the Francis Conroy character? Putnam? Yeah. Aside from the Putnams, I think people are looking at, you know, the beef between Proctor and Paris. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, Proctor's got the right of this thing. But But is that, that's how other people see him. But is yeah. that how Proctor sees himself? That's what I'm saying. Does Proctor think he is that important and that? I don't think that Proctor th- thinks very much at all. Like, he seems like I a guess, bumpkin. Right. And this is what I'm saying. So would he really would he really choose to die out of vanity 
it seems. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like he doesn't he doesn't sell the line that he's like decided that he wants to. There, I mean, there is the line that he says, um, I, I will have, I think he even says, I will have sold my friends. And Danforth says, you, you've sold no, no one. But he doesn't, he doesn't hammer home on that point. He hammers home and like his name will be besmirched. Yeah, I think that he's kind of aware of the difference between the official record and what people actually remember. Like he doesn't have a very forward thinking view of things that he, like, he's got his finger on the pulse enough to, I guess maybe not because he's in prison, but he knows that every almost everybody knows that this is bullshit, especially right. now that the hysteria has died down, and he would rather be remembered as, yeah, like a person who died for for the wrong reasons than a person who lived and was a witch, like confessed witch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get that. I'm just like I just have a beef with how that how that part was acted. It's it has it's like. You can you can interpret the character's motivations many different ways, but I just felt like yeah. that was a little not not exactly what I was. I, it's 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 also not the stage directions. Yeah, so. I think it also really landed for me. It was the, I, well, the, the, the now first... that I think about it, I guess they would have had different stage directions for the um for the the movie for the screenplay, but I'm not sure what the like if the stage directions were as you know detailed for yeah. the screenplay or if the director was okay with that. I think the first time that I watched this movie, I was also dealing with some shit with regards to the value of somebody's name and the value of somebody's reputation. And I also watched this movie right off the heels of reading Mother Night, a Kurt Vonnegut book about Mm. a guy who goes undercover working for the Nazis as a propagandist. Um, Have you read the book? No, I haven't read that one. Okay. Um, And spoilers for Mother Night, I guess. Anyway, he ends up being, uh, being arrested as a Nazi. And the basically the Nazi line for him is like, okay, well, yeah, sure, you were a spy, but you did way more good for us being an effective propagandist than you ever did by being a spy for the Americans. So just I've been very aware of the value of a name and your reputation and what your actions actually mean as opposed to in terms of any kind of enduring legacy aside from your family, all you have is your name and what it's attached to. So I really sympathized with the guy. Right. But what I'm saying is that his name was then put on a gravestone in the specific circle of graves that is for witches in Salem. You right. know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and he also like was basically being like, okay, pregnant wife with three other children at home. Good luck. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's. Yeah, he wasn't practical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he wasn't thinking like, okay, fine. My name is dirt now, but I can rebuild it and I can work towards that. I guess what I'm saying is that I can't relate to that choice other than. Like and he was fine with it until Rebecca Nurse came out and was like, "Oh hi, John. Oh no, what are you doing? You're lying, right?" Like he would have done it if they hadn't brought those other. Well, he's really out. susceptible to other people's whims, right? Yes, yes <laughs> like, he is. He, uh, I, I think that he is very much not the hero of this story, no, even he's though he's not. he's the top billing and everything. Yeah, and it's kind of unfortunate that I don't know. I don't want to be crying sexism where it's maybe not there, but like. He seems to very much be following other people the whole time, but getting all the credit. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not the one who wanted to stray. It was something that Abby talked him into. And then he didn't want to confess in the first place, but his wife, with her moral uprightism, 
once she was in danger, he was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll drag my name through the mud to save you. Mm. And then even at the end, when he's getting ready to hang, like he's just kind of like, all right, getting ready to hang now. And then the women on either side of him, they start doing the Lord's Prayer, and he's just like, oh, yeah, that's a good way to go out. And like that's his final moment, is just, yeah. again, following the lead of these other people around him. But he's the moral upright pillar of the community, even though right to the left of him is this, like, sanctimoniously pure woman who's yeah. the who's like a much bigger victim of this situation than he is actually that that's a good question i wonder how historically accurate rebecca nurse's like standing in the town was if, if that was like accurately depicted yeah. and then, that's supposed to be the point where like you know that okay this has gone too far like yes. fine you can drag like, oh god and when her husband is watching and he looks exactly like her because they're both like <laughs> desiccated skeletons oh it's so sad um no yeah exactly that's the and yeah. that's and that's when hale is like okay <laughs> i'm not so sure about this anymore and um in the book it's it's less pronounced he talks about and I'm assuming that this is, it has a lot to do with how in movies you have to be maybe a little more blunt than you can be on stage, just because on stage you are almost entirely dealing with line delivery and not so much with facial expression and stuff like that. So um, in the movie, when Hale is like, yes, Proctor, come and sign this lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> come and lie. Come on. He, he doesn't do that in the play. It's not right. everybody. I mean, Hale knows that it's a lie, but he's... He, he he would never say that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not... And so in the movie, it has to kind of hit us in the head that, like, you know, people aren't as stupid as... This isn't a case of stupidity. This is a case of willful ignorance gone crazy because of power, right? Because of uh, an illusion of a threat to power and and trying to preserve that power. At the beginning of the movie, when Paris is like, do you not realize that I can't be, I can't have accusations of witchcraft in this house? There's so many people who want my job. Like, there's so many people who want me fired. He says it immediately, right? That this whole thing is not about the devil. Nobody actually believes that the devil is here. Or if they do, they are not actually on the same level as everybody else accusing them of these things. Mm -hmm. This has to do with power and dethroning certain people from power. And as you said and as they say in the in the movie, vengeance. Okay, let's get back to what I was trying to get at <laughs> with Abigail. Okay, so Winona Ryder, I think, was a really good casting yeah. choice for this. Because Winona Ryder has one of those faces that can be, on one hand, can come across as, like, childish and innocent. And then, on the other hand, can be extremely malicious looking and as soon as she kind of gets her um her plot in her mind and what she wants you can see her face change for the rest of the movie right like even just like her eyes get more sunken and all this other stuff it's really it's an interesting it's an interesting face anyway but she's 17 years old in real life she was 11 but in real life i mean the sex is not the same the sexual relationship i mean She's 17 years old. These girls, and I think the movie does a fantastic job of this, of having this, like, gaggle of girls who have nothing to do. All they do all day is, like, pray and chores. And these are teenagers. Teenagers can't live like that. Like, the Puritans are the only people who made their teenagers live like that. And that's why terrible things happened. Right. 
And I really loved how the movie has this like group of girls who are just like sprinting from one corner to the other all together yeah. because there's literally nothing else to do. And that's why when Abigail in the courtroom, when she pretends to see that bird um, on the rafters, when she pretends to see the thing on the rafters, I don't know if they do. they Yeah, they do call it a bird in the movie. Yeah. Um, and then all the other girls, like they have these like knowing glances at each other and then they're like, oh, yeah, me too. And then yeah. they all start doing it as well. This is like and, and, and Proctor says like they're pretending. But that word is not like that word sounds so especially with the archaic language of, you know, the the script and everything. They literally are just playing. And that is a concept that does not make sense to these idiot men who are running the, the plantation, who are running the, the, the settlement. Play is not something that is inherent to people and not even children. This is something that can be controlled. And if you are unable to control it, then that's either our fault, which is what Rebecca Nurse suggests, or it's the devil's fault. And it can't be our fault because we're doing a great job. So it's some outside thing is literally bewitching these girls to make them behave poorly. And when you think about them being so young, but also being old enough that like hormones are a thing, and that's why John Proctor's age was changed from 60 to 35, so that there could be this like impetus to have this vengeance plot. I guess what I'm saying is that if it wasn't about witchcraft, if it was just about a 17-year-old girl who was seduced by a 35-year-old man in 2017. Uh, how about we make it 17 and, like, 20, okay? We don't even have to make it so gross, huge aged gap. Seduced like that and then shirked. And she decides to do something reckless to endanger the lives of that couple. Like, that's a million different plots right there. Like, that happens all the time. And we are probably a lot more forgiving of a girl a 17 year old girl set in like a modern day story who does something like that as being like that's she's just being childish or whatever she will grow out of this this is something she can recover from i don't know if i would like necessarily cast that person as like the villain of something i would say i would be a lot more sympathetic with like she doesn't know what she's doing she's being manipulated by an older person who has the power in this relationship right She's also a child and is bored as fuck and is making bad decisions. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there are a couple of ways that the movie gets you on board for seeing her as the villain of the for thing. For sure. Um, I mean, no, the- exactly. When she, starts, when she starts talking out against Mary and Mary is pleading with her to not do that because Mary knows what's going on. Mary knows that they're making it up and that she's now being thrown under the bus. Your, of course your first reaction is to be like how like this is horrible how could you do this to someone you don't understand the gravity and then you're kind of like you don't understand the gravity you're 17 like mm-hmm. you really don't understand what's about to happen and that's why that's what I was getting at with her face when she is watching the hangings and at first she's like in awe like she's like oh my god I can't believe that this that's actually what it looks like or this is what it what's happening or that I did this and then, and then it come, yeah. And then she kind of changes into being like, "Oh my god, like th- I'm so powerful." But then it kind of gets like, like, okay, this is real life consequences. Mm-hmm. And when you're 17, like that's the, the, there's a reason why everybody like breaks their fucking legs all the time when they're 17 and stuff because you're doing stuff because you think you're invincible and the world's never going to end and all this other thing, all this other stuff that I'm saying is inherent to childhood, in a way that Arthur Miller is projecting on the poor children of 
you know, 1692 Salem that they were robbed of. Yeah. And that that is like that's definitely a, a theory for Salem is that these were just a bunch of kids who were super bored and decided to come up with this, thought it was fun to do this prank that got out of hand. And then mm-hmm. they started lying. And the movie does a good job of being like, you know, lying is a sin and you're going to be in trouble. Like you're in trouble regardless because you either lied then or you lied now. So when is it? Right. Yeah. And so these kids were so frightened about being found out that they would then turn on each other, turn on Tichiba. By the way, Tichiba being whipped doesn't happen in the play. She is threatened to be whipped, but doesn't actually happen. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But also, in, in real life, she was like her confession came like after being beaten. Yes, but not in the play, is okay. what I'm saying. Interesting. Yeah. Actually, all of the violence in the play is all threatened. It's not, you never see anybody hit anybody. You also never see the crushing. You never see any of the hangings. Um, and you also don't see the dancing in the forest at the beginning. Right. You just, these are all like referred to in flashback or flashback. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, I mean, the thing with Abby too is that, I mean, with the rest of the girls, you definitely get that feeling of like the bored innocence and then, and, and all of that. Abby seems a bit different right off the hop because she's the one who escalates the, the spell at the very beginning. Now, I mean, like you said, that could be the, you know, the, the hormones really crushing in and she's the one who's on a different level than everybody else because she has had this, this sexual experience with John Proctor. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for, for somebody coming into this movie and just being like, okay, yeah, these girls are like, they're dancing around and everything. And then the first thing you see this character do is, what is it? She kills a chicken or she, yeah. Yeah. And then drinks its blood. Right. And then drinks its blood. <laughs> yeah. It's a really intense thing to come across. And then right away you're like, whoa, boy. Uh, and then she gets inspired by Paris's daughter and sees, you know, the power that can be wielded by pretending to do something and just yeah. being inspired by that. And and then when she's talking to Proctor, we're like behind the house and she grabs his crotch and kisses mm-hmm. him. Okay. All of these things. Is your reaction? I don't want to say this in an accusatory way. Oh, that's fine. Accusable. I guess what I'm <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, did you not have any sympathy for her in that in that way? No. Really? Okay. No, I wouldn't say so. I I didn't find her to be sympathetic at all. So have you never like felt so strongly about someone that you like killed a chicken? No. Not no, not no, necessarily I'm, killed I'm, a chicken. I'm being, yeah. I know, but I mean like that you've like wished for something that is maybe not morally great so that you can have what you want. <laughs> maybe even not someone, maybe something. Where it's like, you know, if only it could be like this, and then I would get what I want, and that thing that is like this is not that great of a thing. I don't know. Maybe it's just because the, I mean, the the consequences that we see pretty much right away are so strong that I saw that before I started sympathizing. Sorry, what do you mean the consequences like the chicken dying? Well, or? I mean like the chicken dying, and then like her throwing Tichiba to the wolves, and just like, like taking a person. Mm-hmm. And allowing them to be like beaten for your mm-hmm. your silliness. Okay, so you're the youngest of your siblings. Yeah, you never sold either of your siblings out for something that you did wrong. Oh, I'm sure I did. <laughs> I guess I, I I guess I just didn't make that connection. Maybe because maybe it's a, a casting thing that I don't see Winona Ryder as a child. I see. Okay. Um, like it was weird to me when he was like, "Oh, you know, by the time you're 18, you'll be on the stocks." I'm like, "Whoa, boy! Like, is this? She's not 18? Like, whoa!" Then oh, okay. That yeah. didn't that didn't shift my perspective enough to like see her as a child. Right. I saw her as like the 
So you you thought she was like an adult, like a young adult. Oh, I get who it. Who was just kind of like the leader of the gaggle because she was older and because she was uh, willing to take okay. things further. And I saw everybody else's reaction to her as one of, I mean, it was sure boredom, but also yeah. fear that they were scared of like, well, like this Abby Williams is willing to take things to the next level. And we don't want to know what happens to us if we go against her. Well, exactly. But not only that, but like we're implicit in this now. And so if we if we stop playing now, we're going to get in trouble regardless. So we we better yeah. we better, you know, see this through and hopefully we win. Right? Yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, that whole dynamic plays out with uh, what's her name? The the one who Mary? tries to with Mary mm-hmm. that, you know, Mary tries to break out. But Abby, like, yeah, just punches her down. So oh, then all, the other girls see this happening. They're like, well, we're not about to. We're not about to change teams now. And yeah. I mean, even Mary backs down. Yeah. Um, okay, I guess what I mean is that, like, I just feel I'm I'm very sympathetic for Abigail's character because when when you're that young, there are, it's extremely difficult to understand what the consequences of your decisions are going to be. Sure. And when you are motivated by what you think is the love of your life um, and y- you live in 1692 Salem, uh, it's, you know... Y- I think you can be forgiven to be a little extreme in your decisions. And honestly, I don't really see it as much different than like wish for something bad to happen to your crush's girlfriend. Like just even wish for her to become ugly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that the the attention is changed on you. And that's like literally the, the p- plot of every like family channel <laughs> Disney show, right? That at some point someone does something mean like that and then maybe it comes true in like a wacky way or whatever, right? And that's all this is that that I guess what I'm trying to say is that like in to Abigail's mind, that's all this is. And that's why she's so dismissive at the beginning where she's like, Listen, like we weren't doing anything, it's just sport or whatever. I really truly believe that she thinks the drinking the blood of the chicken is literally just sport. Like I don't think she's actually excited about the devil coming to do her work. Like I think it's like the same way that someone who, who um uh finds like a penny on the ground keeps it as a lucky penny like if you really press that person they wouldn't be like well yes of course this is the 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 totem that i choose to use for the rest of my life or whatever right like this is just like a a kind of a superstition thing where you're fucking desperate because you miss it's been seven months since you got real that good good dick (laughs) (laughs) and you don't even really get to see him anymore you know what i mean like this is just and there's nothing else to do there are no other eligible bachelors in the area and you definitely can't be having casual sex with them yeah. you know what i mean like this no i definitely saw I, I definitely saw the desperation in that but like even if she wasn't i don't know, like she 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 had the seed in her mind that like okay well like if i mean nothing else has worked let's try witchcraft like, yeah exactly. that's what let's I'm go saying. for it which is like something that happens like today right like yeah. where people like i know people who have been in bad breakups who have not like in their entire lives been interested in anything mystical they have a bad breakup and then they're like, well, I've been to therapy, you know, I've done like medication and I've done all these, I've, I've started working out and stuff, like might as well go to a tarot reader too, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like things that they've never actually believed in. Yeah. And, you know, this is more severe, but at the same time we have to understand that this is like Tichiba's influence on them being like, yeah, okay, you drink the blood of a chicken. To Tichiba, that's not, we have to remember that this is like a cultural thing for her, right? So like... For her, drinking the blood of a chicken is something that people aren't, you know, talking about in in hushed corners, right? Like in her culture, uh, especially in like voodoo and hoodoo witchcraft, this is something completely normal that you would go to as like a priest or like a doctor of your village and be like, you know, 
my mom's got some sort of ailment. What should I do? Okay, eat this toad backwards or whatever, right? Like, this is a thing. This is legit belief for her. So it's maybe not as... The reaction that you're having against how gross it is that she's killing and drinking chicken blood is not the same reaction that the other people in Salem, that the other white people in Salem are having. They're not grossed out about the fact that she drank animal's blood or that she killed an animal. They're grossed out by the idea that that is something related to the devil. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, for sure. I guess, like, Tichiba's horror is part of what I think gets me on board with how far Abby has escalated this thing because everybody else is doing what seems like the silly I guess like the the sleepover ritual that she's doing and like okay we're gonna like we're gonna dabble with some magic but like don't worry but I mean Abby got clearly got this idea from somewhere but Tichiba's reaction is like no no that's a bad thing that's a bad thing and Tichiba seems horrified do you mean at the beginning when it actually happens or do you mean um I think she says uh no Abby that's a bad thing when Abby whispers what she wants because I think she's wishing for the death of right Elizabeth yeah um, and then she like does this this sacrificial thing, and Tichiba seems like legitimately horrified that like right, okay, I've got these bored white girls. Let's okay, fine. Let's let them borrow from my culture a bit. Let me show them like the for sure, for sure, the base stuff. But then Abby gets real about yeah. it. So yeah, no, Abby's wish is something that Tichiba does not believe in or like enjoy. But definitely, what she was the one who told her that like a way to make a wish come true is you know a sacrificial thing or whatever right you know what i'm saying right i guess i i assumed probably coming from my own cultural standpoint that that would have been something that she like whispered over a campfire one night but like but we never do that that's like that's how far things could escalate right but wasn't never would have suggested it right and so like abby is extremely desperate i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that abby made good decisions or anything i'm just saying that i find her to be a sympathetic character that when i first was watching it i thought like, you know, I, I, I mean, I knew what to expect, but I disliked her a lot more in the play than I did in the movie. And that's because of Winona Ryder's performance. Like, Winona Ryder's eyes are just so emotive. Oh, my God. Like, there's a there's a part where it's a close-up on her, and one of her eyes is twitching, and the other one isn't. And I'm like, was that on purpose? How did you do that? <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Give her the Oscar right now for I the eye twitch. I mean, she's just, she's so, like, I don't know. Maybe it is the age thing that we talked about that I just wasn't recognizing her, the age of the character. But I just, I guess because she, everything got so bad so quickly that I couldn't understand how she couldn't see the consequences and couldn't stop. But, you know, like you said, no, there, like, there were reasons that you couldn't stop. Like, well, once yeah, you get like, that ball rolling, exactly. there, are, there are actual, you know. Once you're deep into a lie, you got to keep lying, right? Like, yeah. there's no way, there's no way it breaks good for you. It's... It's yeah, it's uh, and then so um, there's a, a a note at the beginning of the the play, a note on the historical accuracy of this play, um, and Arthur Miller is, is very specific. He raises Abigail's age, um, uh, and Proctor's uh, age has been reduced. Blah blah blah. So later on, Arthur Miller says that the rumor, I guess, and this is in one of his kind of asides to the reader, not not in the play itself. Um, the rumor is that Abigail went to Boston and became a prostitute. And I don't know what the actual, you know, I don't know what his research is for this, but that's an interesting thing to add into the play to color our view of Abigail and kind of, you know, who she is and who she became. There's no actual historical record of what happened to her. She did vanish, though. 
So who would you say then is the the villain of the piece then? I mean, if I came at it from saying it was Abby and then the institution, then, or is the whole point that it's not that easy? Well, it's not that easy, except for the institution is definitely the, the, the institution is definitely the answer. But the reason that it's not that easy is exactly why institutions are so scary. And that is because there isn't one specific person you can point at. And that's why I'm saying that I don't actually see it as a perfect parable to McCarthyism, because when McCarthy died, which was like really soon after he kind of started disturbing all the shit, it pretty much took care of itself. Like as soon as the leader was gone, it it wasn't nearly as um, as much of a, a quote unquote witch hunt. But in in the Crucible, in the movie, the the institution is definitely the the bad guy unless you want to get kind of metaphorical and talk about how just greed and pride is the bad guy because even one of my favorite things about how scary this is I really do find this to be a frightening movie and it's also a very frightening play is how even the people who had the most conviction at the beginning of the play later on you can see them just being like, what the fuck have we done? This is horrible, right? Like Paris at the end of the play or at the end of the movie, sorry, is just like, please let it stop. Like, I can't, we can't do this anymore. This is, you know, I got what I needed and it's been, you know, we've all had some great laughs, but we really need to slow this down now. Even Hawthorne in the movie I, I don't remember this in the play. I didn't notice this in the play, but Hawthorne in the movie is even like Danforth. Can you cool it? <laughs> like this is clearly this is enough at this point, right? Yeah. The and people have had enough of the hangings. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Hale, same way, right? Where Hale came thinking that he was going to really help people out and that this has gotten away from him. And that's where he says, like, I, I quit this court or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, I would have been kind of scared to do. Right. Like. Well, that's what. At one point, are they going to turn on you because you're not, you're not supporting this? Yeah, and it's everybody knows, but nobody knows how to put the brakes on the thing Mm -hmm. and how to stop the institution. Like, well, there's actually like the the choice that you mentioned that in the movie Hale is like, man, just lie on this piece of paper. Yeah, and then Danforth has to put up the pretense of being like, sir, do you dare suggest that? That you would that this parchment is a lie, and then he even like gives him another out where he's like, "I'm not going to accept it if it's a lie, <laughs> right?" Like, so tell me it's not a lie. <laughs> yeah. Um. And yeah, and like they would have stopped the cart if if Proctor was suddenly like, "Actually, no," because like they, you know, they they understood that the it was not the uh, the popular thing for them to do anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But what was I going to say? Oh, in the play. One of the interesting differences that I found was that at some uh, during that conversation when Hale is like, you know, we can get Proctor to um, confess and then we don't have to hang him and hopefully we can get the other two to confess too. And then Danforth is like, okay, go do it. And Hale <laughs> comes back and he's like, I need more time because it happens like the morning, the morning of his, like of his hanging, uh, his scheduled hanging. And uh, he's like, can you just commute the sentence for, like, a week or something? Uh, I need more time. And Danforth is like, no, there's no way I'm doing that. I can't look like I'm getting soft or something. And he's like, okay, well, can't you just, like, it would be of great charity if you were to forgive these three who are kind of like our paragon of righteousness, right? Like, if if these three go up there and start praying or something, everybody's going to be super bummed out, right? And that's exactly what happened. And everybody was super bummed out. 
And Danforth says, I can't do that. I can't go back because then that would bring everybody to question all the other 40 people that I've already hanged. Like, I can't stop at this point because then my other decisions will be brought into question. Yeah. Which is just like, that's the institution, right? Like, it's I don't care about these individual people and their lives and these, you know, the people who will be upset about this. I don't even care about what how history will treat me for this. Like, I literally cannot be questioned in this plane of existence. Yeah, there's this really scary momentum that these institutions have and these agents of it are just... I mean, even if they're personally questioning, they're just like, no, this is what has to be done. This is what we have to do because and I don't even know if there is like an overarching, like a like a management that Danforth answers to. Like he doesn't make reference to that. He's just... Well, and... and like he calls himself the ultimate authority. Right, and Proctor says that too, right? He's like, you don't... the If you go and tell the people, they'll believe you because you are the ultimate you know, the seat of justice, so I don't have to sign anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's all... So another thing that I wanted to point out is this, like, this cold, cold efficiency. Um, one of the reasons we have so much information about these people and why Arthur Miller can come up with these characters. He does say at the beginning in his um, explanation on the his- history that, you know, a lot of this is his fictionalization, obviously, because there's not a ton of information. But there is, you know, enough that we know exactly who these people were, what they did, who their parents were, who their children were, all this stuff. And the reason for that is because of the Puritans' predilection to keeping incredibly precise records of everything. So the all of the all of the all of the information from the trials are kept in records that are available at the Massachusetts Historical Society as if it was like something that happened as if it was like the OJ trial. Do you know what I mean? And this happened in 1692. Yeah. The Puritans are obsessed with how information is going to stand the test of time going forward. And that's really nicely seen in the movie, I think, when they bring that box out and it's got like this pre-written confession already, you know, and like a nice little pen for him to sign it with and everything. And they're all just, you know, this is all bureaucratic. This is all institutionalized, like you said. And we just need to get this done and dusted so that we can head back to Boston because it's been like a few months in this podunk town. <laughs> and we'd really, you know, like to get back to the actual civilization. Man, it's... I'm depressed. <laughs> you know, it's a depressing it's a depressing movie for sure. Especially now, right? Like, especially with what's going on right now where you're thinking about the idea of people just kind of thinking is this really happening (laughs) right like news stories every day where people are like no like there's no way that that could have happened yeah and that's what this was right it was just like a series of well this will this will take care of itself there's no way (laughs) we're like that's what um the proctors when they're having these conversations they're like can you imagine that they like they actually arrested all these people like oh well like there's no way they'll never arrest so and so and then like 40 minutes later, yeah. that person gets arrested. Well, and even when they're they're coming to arrest Elizabeth, they're like, well, why haven't you gotten involved until now? He was like, because I thought this was all going to blow over because this is all clearly ridiculous. Yeah. And Proctor is the one person who actually speaks, John Proctor, is the one who speaks to just like the insanity of the whole thing. He's like, I forget how he, like the, the phrasing of it, because I think that like the, just the, the quality of the dialogue in this movie is, is stellar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about the historical accuracy of it, but just like 
how well they're able to use this old timey sort of language, yeah, yeah. but still like have so much punch to everything. Just it's it's lyrical how everybody talks. Um, it's way better than the witch. <laughs> oh my god. Um, but they like he's like, do you not realize that people are confessing because you're torturing them? Right. Do you not realize that there's like this negative? Yeah, and then what motivation? Does, and then what does Danforth say? Doesn't he just like skim past it? Well, he's like, he's like, do you question my judgment or whatever? Right? Like he turns it in being like, like, are you saying that I don't know how to do my job? That's yeah. what he's saying, right? Like, yeah. And th- like, where have we heard that recently? Like, this is what like cops say in defense for what they're when they when they commit crimes. You know what I mean? We're like, I was doing my job. Are you accusing me of not knowing how to do my job? Yeah. Like, well, where do you go with that? Yeah. Where do you go with that line of accusation? Yeah. There's nowhere well, to and- go. Like there are all these modern parallels, and I mean, if there are going to be parallels with the McCarthy era, there are going to be parallels now. I mean, one of the ones that stuck out to me that wasn't necessarily as judgmental was uh, when Danforth is talking about how uh, the evil and the good will separate, mm-hmm. and I mean that works in terms of identifying. I mean, there there is a really sinister side to that where you're identifying somebody who you're saying, okay, these are the evil ones, and anybody who wants to, they can just lump them in with this group and that'll just clear up our, our social problem for now or at least be a distraction but then there's also like the the whole separation thing that we're doing in everybody's lives that everybody's seems to be putting themselves in a camp and we talk about these social media bubbles of politics and everything mm-hmm. and we are in a point right now where the differences of political opinions and things like that is getting really closely linked to morality mm-hmm. in very strong terms that you know the the people I'm going to try to speak vaguely just for the sake of having open communication but saying that what I believe is the moral thing and anybody who believes the opposite side of it is morally corrupt and evil Mm -hmm. and needs to be wiped out at any cost Mm -hmm. and i think that and i think it's so reductive to be like on both sides like there's it's more complex than just a left and a right thing but our 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 senses of moralities are getting so closely tied to our our political beliefs which i think in a lot of cases makes sense like do you want to take care of people or do you want to not take care of people like that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but it's when that gets the support of an institution behind it at the same time and all of a sudden half of people are evil. I'm just like, it's it's scary to think about what that actually leads to. Right. And I mean, just even in the context of the, of the, of the movie, when he says that, what he's saying is that it's impossible for someone to be a good person and ever make a mistake, you know, and ever have a fault, which is, which goes against Christian theology entirely, right? Like the whole reason Jesus died is to forgive yeah. sins. But in in his mind you're either with us or you're against us and there's if you're with us you are good and pure and if you're against us even if your reasons for being against us make a hell of a lot of sense you are evil yeah and proctor the proctor family is evil even though the reason that they don't go to church is because they don't respect the clergy and their reasons for not respecting the clergy in my mind are a hell of a lot more christian than what the clergy is exemplifying right so Right, but once one side of something is given the authority of uh-huh. an institution, then that almost doesn't matter. Yeah, um, Arthur Miller refers to it as a theocracy. Yeah, that's what that's what has been created as a theocracy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the 
the fact that you can't ever do anything wrong otherwise you're evil and i saw something kind of oh that's nice on twitter today because i think that i mean my twitter timeline is pretty is pretty liberal in terms of things and sometimes there's attacks on things Mm -hmm. that i'll look at and i'll be like okay like are we are we mad because we're mad or are we mad because we don't have anything else to be mad about right now Mm -hmm. i'm definitely guilty about of being mad for the sake of being mad (laughs) (laughs) um but what i saw today was um it seemed like elsewhere on the internet people were getting upset with ben affleck because this old interview or something got dug up from like 20 years ago where he made a joke about how the the hardest thing for a male actor to do is to have to kiss another male actor okay which i mean it's an unfortunate thing to say right but 20 years ago that's totally something that right and yeah. that's and that's what people that that's how i was actually coming to the information yeah. was people being like okay like come on like it's 20 years ago that's 1997 people, are yeah. you kidding me he would have gotten like keelhauled for saying the opposite <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it was nice for me to see people being like okay like we're let's yeah. be forgiving let's not be mad for the sake of being mad let's not give in to outrage just for the sake of it which was nice for me to see mm-hmm. um but th- what another thing that really scared me in watching this movie is how how transparently and explicitly bullshit i used wrong parts of speech there anyway how how explicit and transparent a lot of the bullshit that the people in power speak like we're watching it and we know like this doesn't hold up to scrutiny but it yeah. comes where's the proof yeah and it comes with but it comes with this authority and uh, characters call it out but because of the authority it gets crushed like i think even hale says the marks of the devil are as definite as stone mm-hmm. but then later you have danforth being like well all we have to go by is what people say like there is no proof even yeah. though hale is creating this narrative where like well we know because we know it's our job to know so i think that we would know when witchcraft is here but you don't because it's not here um and then the uh who's the third judge like the the real bumpkiny one the like the the vernon dursley one hawthorne is it hawthorne the the like gravelly voiced one the the one who barely does anything (laughs) i'm not sure actually sewell okay yeah it is hawthorne Anyway, it's Sewell that tells him to cut the shit and be like, okay, we can stop doing oh, the hangings. Okay. That makes a lot more sense then. Yeah, and then, okay, so Hawthorne, now that we have the characters straight, yes, after we're an hour bed. and a half my into bed. the podcast. No, it's my fine. Bed. So Hawthorne says th- just that stupid, ridiculous line where he says, uh, the the one defendant is saying like, I don't even, I, I know not what a witch is. And he says, well, if you know you're n- if you don't know what a witch is, how do you know that you're not one? Right. And this ooh yeah. <laughs> comes out from the crowd, and you're like, "Are you kidding me? Like, how is this coming with any kind of authority?" Yeah. But, I mean, at least in my experience of people who are currently in power in the world, I mean, that's that's what we're doing. We're watching people just being like, "I can't believe that that's what's being said right now. I can't believe that people in with power and authority." are able to say things that are so transparent and so ridiculous and it's just that there aren't at least there don't seem to be checks and balances to stop that sort of thing from happening and you just you sit there and you watch it happen so yeah i mean i guess just i mean i I identify with feeling powerless to watching people say ridiculous things with authority right exactly and this is happening right now like (laughs) so in that in that 
article that Arthur Miller wrote for the New York Times in 1996 when this came out, the last paragraph is him being like, so this play always gets staged in Latin American countries when there's a coup going on and other kind of vaguely racist things of him to say um, in his very in this like flippant way. I mean, that's the, the kind of racist part of it. But he says something along the lines of, I'm not entirely sure why this movie is being made now. Like, I don't know exactly what the what the impetus is, what the, you know, equalizing narrative in our day-to-day right now in 1996 is but obviously people can relate to this right that's what he says and it's kind of like man i wish you understood what was going on i wish you were around now to see just how like lifting quotes from like the whole idea of everything that was talked about when this came out like and witch hunt was popularized as a phrase obviously it wasn't because of the crucible it was being used before that and that's probably part of the reason that miller was you know inspired to write about the Salem um but yeah just like this is happening right now and this is exactly what my dissertation hopes to investigate where why we keep coming back to this story that was so defining for how America saw itself before America existed and that's what I mean is that like this is before America existed but we still Americans when I, I say we I'm not American but I study I'm an Americanist so I say we a lot Americans, as a culture, identify with this kind of institutionalized correctness. The, you know, if you're if you're not guilty, you won't get put in jail, right? Like, if you're innocent, you have nothing to fear. The system will always work when, like, clearly the system is not working. And this is something that is has direct lineage from 1692 from before America was even thought about being America. And that's, yeah, that's what I hope to look at for for my project. And watching this movie now, in 2017, 20 years later, and having it be so much more salient, I think, to our times than, I mean, I don't really remember 1996. I was nine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was going on? Kosovo? Was that 1996? Did that have anything to do with? You're asking the wrong person. Yeah. I know, like, before I was born and after I was, like, way after I was born, but not when I was 10. Anyway, yeah. I'm just really looking forward to, um, you know, a speedy resolution of the craziness that is the current witch hunt going on in the United States. And I don't mean the one that Trump thinks he's the um, prey of. (laughs) Okay, so uh, stepping back from the themes and stuff, just, I mean, you've read the play, mm-hmm. so as a movie, mm-hmm. um, and I... Yeah, I don't mean to talk too much about the play, I just, like, that's the, no, where I'm coming fine. from. So as a as a movie, mm-hmm. I mean, what what did you get from it? Like, what... I thought it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that they actually shot it on location. Salem is a very, and you've been there, like, it's, it's, it's pretty in that it's the ocean, but it's also very, like, kind of marshy and not... It's not like a nice like beach area or anything, right? Like it's just and you see that when the girls run into the water too. It's just kind of swampy. Yeah, and I just I just thought it was the costumes were great. Um like you said the the dialogue was great. Like the writing is wonderful because it it gives you that sense of period, but it also is just still snappy and um gets the point across. The pacing is is quite good. 
I don't think it's as good as the play, but th- I've never actually seen them play mounted, so I'm just reading the play, so that's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> it's not as good as your mind play. Right, exactly. And actually, another interesting thing, and this is obviously just for practical reasons, but most of the play takes place indoors. Like There's like five sets or something that they use, and it was really interesting seeing them use the outdoors and the girls bursting out of the meeting house and you know running into the water and all of that is completely just the movie and I thought it was interesting to play with that space and to to really see more of these the kind of like plantation aspect of Massachusetts and what what life in the this extremely oppressive place oppressive in what I mean by that is like the winters were terrible and like yeah. it's really hard to grow anything and all this other stuff um yeah so i i i, I thought it translated really well to a movie and i, I was surprised by that if the first time i watched this i was watching it on the ipad and i thought there was something wrong with my headphones or with like the earphone jack because the sound was a bit weird anytime they were outside like there was this almost tinny sort of quality to it oh interesting but then i was watching it again on my tv and it's still there so i wonder if that's just something with the with netflix or if that was just a consequence of filming where they did that there was there were sound things that they had to compensate for i will have to check again i didn't really notice but i wasn't paying like i was just kind of like i can't believe we can hear you at all <laughs> like this is it's so oh, it was, it was, out there. It was like distractingly so anytime that they were mm. outside and there was like horse clopping or whatever there was this this almost artificial sort of quality to it oh interesting okay we just went and listened to it again, and Dylan is completely correct. It sounds like someone is using like a weed whacker behind them, and I didn't notice that the first time. Yeah, so. I mean, it sounds like the kind of artifact that I mean, from from recording here, like if I've ever tried to do like noise reduction, right, on like a hum, but I've had like turn the volume up to compensate for it. It's got that sort of quality to it. So I, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's just the Netflix rip, or if that's, or however they do it, or if that's something that's just always been there. But it was really peculiar. Yeah. To me. And it's, like it's really off-putting too. every time I was every time they shoot outside. So I, we talked a little bit beforehand that this was for both of us actually our first Daniel Day Lewis movie yeah. that we'd watched. Yeah, both of us. Yeah. Um. So what did you think of him? And so like my my first watch, I or like my first half hour or whatever, I was like, this is miscast. I did not. I was not a, a big fan of him. But on, on the other hand, I don't. I guess I don't know what I pictured either. So, but then near the end. Even even with my criticism of his, you know, maybe misinterpreting that line or like overselling it in a way I wasn't fond of, um, yeah, no, I I thought that uh, he was he definitely has chops for sure. I can tell why people think that he's so talented. I'm just not. I don't know. I guess I'm just not 100% sure why Daniel Day Lewis and like why they went for his kind of look and everything. Um, he's obviously handsome, but. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know who else I would have picked. I don't know if... Well, another thing, too, is, like, I think Winona Ryder is pretty, but I don't think she's, like... She's described in the play as being, like... Like, it's someone that's so beautiful that, like, when she walks into the room, it's like, oh, my God. And I'm not 100% sure if that's what they were going for for the movie, because I don't entirely see that for Winona Ryder. Well, I, I I don't know what the play does with it, but the... I mean, for the movie, it seems like it's more of a John's not really getting what he's looking for at home. Exactly. So he's just kind of looking to stray with anybody who comes along. Right. And she was working in their house. Yeah. Yeah. But the the, the play 
actually introduces her like the stage direction is like you know um abigail williams enters 17 years old breathtakingly beautiful or something Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean like it's like a stage direction that this is someone who like who people are and this is totally a, a trope of anything to do with this is exactly what the scarlet letter is about where like that woman is so gorgeous that she is a temptation right like it's her fault that yeah. I'm being tempted into something, which is only like a kind of touched on. He he, when he talks about how he saw or um, his wife saw her as the whore that she is beforehand, like he's blaming her for luring him. Right, it's right? her harlotry, not his weakness. Or exactly, not his wandering eye because because his wife is sick and he's not getting enough or whatever. Right, so which is what makes that at the end so heartbreaking when she says when she apologizes to him for having such a cold home because she didn't like i know because she she thinks that she drove she says i it's a cold wife that drives a man to lechery mm-hmm. and yeah that's just so sad blaming herself yeah did you especially because she lived after that with that on her mind right like this is why like i don't i don't i don't entirely think that anything that he did was noble <laughs> at all right mm-hmm Meanwhile, she's this this pinnacle of virtue and goodness. And she's, I mean, to the point that she's able to stand up to Hale and say, listen, I am a good woman. You know, I've worked my entire life to be able to say that. This is when it counts. This is when I'm able to put my chips down and say, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. You need to believe me now. Um, and then just the, the horrible tragedy that like the one time she lies that, yeah that she makes this impossible choice between protecting her husband and protecting her flawless win streak of truth telling mm-hmm. that she ends up choosing the one that leads to destruction for their family yeah exactly and then just that that moment where she goes oh god yeah right after oh man yeah, yeah. Uh, did you catch the the daniel day lewis trivia like the the method no. little bits about oh, yeah this. he's weird about that right he's like a oh i mean that, actor. yeah that's what he's i mean that i don't even know at this point how much of it is true and how much of it is legend well, didn't I feel he like, like live as lincoln for a while like he would like go to like where they were filming lincoln he like went in his like full costume and like pretended to be lincoln and ordered coffee as lincoln and stuff like that. yeah i had heard, <laughs> heard with lincoln that he uh he would treat the person who was playing his servant as a servant oh boy and like <laughs> like tell them to go get stuff um, so do you know Must what he be did? Nice. Do you know what, at least according to IMDb, he did for this movie? Cheat on his wife. <laughs> this is actually the movie where he met his wife. Right. Yes. Um, no, he built that house that they lived in, like the set for the Proctor house. He oh. built that, and he didn't bathe or shower during the entire production. Oh, it shows. It shows. One of my first notes that I took for <laughs> for Poor this episode. Or Ryder. Oh my God. I hope they film that scene where they kiss early on in the <laughs> yeah my my first note is just john proctor looks like he smells bad that oh was... <laughs> yeah yeah you tweeted that right did i i think so oh man i yeah. hope so yeah so oh, i guess yeah that was and elizabeth that was... has to kiss him at the end gross mm-hmm. and that's when he's full-on stank i mean that was a really good um it, they they really do look like they've been through hell and back yeah. all of them it... and the teeth the teeth in this movie Yeah, the are, teeth, yeah. I mean... <laughs> really bad. Oof. Yeah. Which is distracting. It's like Orange is the New Black, yeah. It's distracting, the yeah. teeth. Where it's like, okay, there's authenticity, and then there's, like, scale it back a little bit. Which is maybe something that kind of 
is another thing that throws me from that that really poignant bit that he has at the end where that I'm I'm thinking that he's overselling it like I cannot stop looking at his <laughs> teeth it's really gross okay well we've been talking about this for a while I mm-hmm. think it's time to uh, to wrap this up the way that we normally do so we want to assign this moving a rating uh, based on what it gets in your own Netflix profile so either a thumbs up or a thumbs down oh, right, just, yeah. yep just real Sweet. easy um, and then the other question is your MVP so your your highlight, whether it's in front of or behind the camera, just the the best thing this movie's got going for it. Uh, so wait, do people do some people pick behind the camera? Well, you've picked a house before. <laughs> That's in front of the camera, dude. I suppose. Yeah, some people, <laughs> sometimes people pick director or or really music or yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Sorry, I didn't realize that you didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just whatever. So uh, rating number. I don't think that would have changed anybody you, that I ever picked. What do you got? So my rating is a thumbs up for sure. It's a it's like a compelling watch. Um, I don't think I ever have to watch it again, but that doesn't, that's not no slight against the movie. Um, and if you don't even know the source material or anything like that, I think it's a compelling watch. It's extremely well acted and it's beautiful. Can you tell me what it was nominated for? It was Oscar nominated, right? It was nominated for best adapted screenplay. And then, uh, Joan Allen was nominated for best supporting actress for playing Elizabeth Proctor. That's I'm, I'm shocked about that. She was fantastic, but I wouldn't have even thought that she was, I don't know. Yeah, she was really great, though. She, yeah, was definitely sympathetic and tragic. But, I mean, I have to go with Winona Ryder. Her, like I said, the things that her, the emotions that her face can show, the varying emotions in such a short period of time is extremely impressive. And I mean, like, I've seen a couple movies with her before, but I don't think I've ever seen a drama uh, I, I mean I guess she's in Black Swan which is a drama but I've never seen her be like such a focal point in a drama before and I was extremely impressed with her ability to command attention also it is extremely difficult I think to act in that way where everyone knows like the the viewer knows that she's making that shit up and hates it but is she's so convincing in her own lie you know what i mean like it's difficult to act like you're lying but you're acting like you're convincing someone do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and she does it in this layer that is kind of like you know i hate you and i hate what you're doing but part of me is a little sold you know like damn yeah you're impressed by the commitment and you can understand why yeah i mean like abby as a character she not only is inspired by what she sees with the the girls who pretend to be sleeping but she also recognizes the pretenses that exist in her culture and she's willing to exploit them she says that and she says that um proctor is the one who opened her eyes to how how this entire society is all pretense nobody is actually as good as they pre- pretending to be. right because even the great john proctor was willing to go for a roll in the hay with her exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and her, just like the how how wild you know her eyes at some point just look like she looks crazy yeah she's scary yeah she is scary yeah you can understand why these other girls are following her for sure but you can also understand why john is scared of her because he he can see what she is capable of like when she when they're behind that house and she's like i know you love me and i like it's only a matter of time or whatever you know and your wife's a cold bitch and blah blah, blah. like she is horrifying we're not talking we're not talking about like she is someone who is going to drink chicken's blood and kill your wife you know like this is 
actually really scary. Yeah. Do you think that the movie suffers for? I guess you don't really feel like the movie does demonize her. You you feel more sympathetic. No, no. I mean, like I do. I do feel like it's it demonizes her, and I think that the play demonizes her too. But I do feel sympathetic towards her because I've like worked at feeling sympathetic towards her. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm seeing it from a perspective that yeah. you're not. It's not supposed to be your first blush perspective. Yeah. Um, there's also like an interesting thing. There was a, a another scene in the play that was cut after like the first or second time it was ever produced, like ever mounted, where John and Abigail meet again and have another conversation that is a little bit more makes her to be a, a little bit more of a sympathetic character and Miller decided to cut that and re- remove it from subsequent productions and there's a note that says that he um he sa- he says in the note that some productions since have opted to put it back in and and most don't and the movie didn't um so i, I do think that the movie is is meant to see Abigail as the the bad guy but you're supposed to then realize and start thinking that okay she was the instigator but the the only reason this got out of hand is because the system is so broken and the system is so bent towards people who have power already Uh, for me it's thumbs up as well i think this is a a great affecting movie it's i mean not in a pleasing sort of way but it's entertaining it's punchy while also I mean, I haven't, I wasn't there, but I can say that it feels like it might be authentic to the time period it's representing. Right. While still being, like, completely accessible. Um, as for my MVP, I picked Joan Allen. Nice. As Good. Elizabeth Proctor. all the bases. Um, I just, I felt like all the scenes that she was in really made the tragedy strike, like, really brought it home yeah. more than... I didn't care too much about what John was going through unless it was affecting Elizabeth. Yeah. Because she worked hard her entire life to be able to, like I said, to be able to to cash in her chips when she needed to, to like say, no, I'm a good person. Like, I am not a witch. And she put everything out there. And then at the end for her to be taking responsibility for everything that happens, saying... You know, I'm just rehashing things we've already said, but like mm-hmm. taking responsibility for John's infidelity mm-hmm. to the point that he's just like, oh, my God, I can't like I don't deserve you. You're so you're such a decent person for doing this. And it's true. He doesn't. So maybe and, it is good that he carted himself off to the gallows <laughs> so that she could have a better go of it uh, with someone else. But I mean, he even laughs. Right. Like, yeah, he, he's so bewildered and befuddled that like how could you how could this be what's going in your mind how are you that good of a person mm-hmm. it's stupid that you're that decent of a person that you're trying to take on the blame for this instead of me and my my wild dick <laughs> so yeah i thought that i mean she just she nailed it so much and she gave the movie an extra emotional punch that it it wouldn't have had without her actually now that you mention it all the women like the the woman who plays rebecca nurse is incredible and like just so heartbreaking to see this extremely like this ancient old lady in such terrible condition at the end of the movie um the woman who plays putnam was also francis conroy yeah you know you can see the the revenge she's seeking on no one in particular for having to bury all of her children and yeah no they were all all of the women are are excellent well and then the uh, I, i forgot her name again but the 
the one who tries to break away and then she gets pulled back in. Mary. Yeah, and Mary. Yeah, Mary's really good. Yes. Everybody's really good. Hale is really good. I yeah. really like... His hair is so distracting. <laughs> I can't, like... It's just not a good look. Yeah. I in, think... In I mean, any for, decade. For Hale and Danforth both, I feel like the fact that I could get past the hair really showed how, <laughs> how strong their performances were. Hmm. Like with Danforth, I felt like, yeah, when you first see him, you're like, yeah, great, now I want oatmeal, but... <laughs> He does look like the Quaker guy, yeah. There's actually a line. Wait, is it in the movie? I can't remember where he, where they're like, are we Quakers? What's going on? This is ridiculous. <laughs> no, I, Yeah, it's in I, the play. Like, okay. we're not Quakers. All right. Well, Caroline, this has been uh, enlightening and uh, and fun, nice. question mark, to, Good. to talk to you about this in as much as it could be, talking about how we're all going to go in a hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Or prison in a handbasket for some kind of infraction also against that, the government. that scene where she where abigail comes to him in proctor in the jail and is like i can bribe the guard and we'll get out of here that never happens in the play they, right. they don't see each other after it all goes down um the reason i brought that up is because he says the next time we'll see each other is in hell right yeah which is a, a really good line <laughs> <laughs> and he believes it too oh yeah oh like, for sure oh, like it's it's for as scary i guess as it is how much conviction these people have in talking about heaven and hell and just kind of being able to sit back and be like, Oh, Nelly, like I know from knowing how this all turns out that like y'all are crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but when he just gut punches her with that line yeah. and just like meaning it, cause I could tell you to go to hell right now and right. you'd be like, well, that was rude. Yeah. But he's like, we are both eternally damned and I will see you there. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> That's yeah. a roof. All right, well, thank you so much for suggesting thank this you. movie, for, for coming on, for doing this. Thanks for having me, and, uh, as always. So if people want to talk to you more about this movie mm-hmm. or about anything, where can where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at um, Dizen, so D-I-E-Z-Y-N, and I'm also on Letterboxd, D-I-E-Z-Y-N, so you can talk to me more about the Crucible or any of the other movies that I've reviewed on Letterboxd or any of the movies that I yell about on Twitter. Right on. Well, thanks again. Thank you. That's everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. The kinds of things you can find in show notes for today's episode, for instance, include a bit of further reading from Caroline about some of the works that we talked about, including uh, their review of the first season of Bloodline as well as their review of The Witch, which got mentioned briefly in passing derisively. So if you want to hear Caroline talk more about The Witch, there's a link to that review in the show notes there as well. I've also linked off to episode 35 of this show, where Caroline and I talked about Practical Magic. I've also got some handy Netflix and Amazon links for the other movies and series that we talked about, like Bloodline, Practical Magic, The Stand-Ups, and The Witch. You can find Netflix on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me there at Dylan Clark Moore. That's Dylan spelled the proper way, which is D-Y-L-A-N, then Clark Moore is C-L-A-R-K-M-O-O-R-E. And we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. 
If you'd like to support the show, there are all sorts of ways you can do so. One is by heading over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you use and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you could drop a rating or a review and let us know what you think. Even more importantly, be sure to tell your friends about what we are doing here. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign, whether it's for the rewards, like early access to show notes, or just to see us keep doing what we're doing. You can pledge your support over at patreon.com or by hitting the support button at the top of our blog. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.